Psalm 53 to the chief musician set to Mahalat, a contemplation of David. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have done abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. Every one of them is turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are in great fear, where no fear was, for God has scattered the bones of him who encamps against you. You have put them to shame, because God has despised them. Oh, that salvation of Israel would come out of Zion, when God brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice, and Israel be glad. Okay, we're into another chapter of Exodus. We're up to Exodus chapter 13. We're going to read verses 1 through 10 today. And this is entitled, The Feast of Unleavened Bread. Chapter 13, verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of hand, the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. On this day, you are going out in the month of Aviv. And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day, there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, This is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. It shall be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. Now, you've heard the sermon text read, and you're not looking forward to hearing the same thing preached now that we heard just four sermons ago. While I was reading, I saw a couple of you flipping back and forth, back to chapter 12, and I heard you mutter, we just read the same thing in verses 14 through 20. I mean, there are some differences, but why does the Lord keep repeating the same things? Next time, I would ask you to not mutter so loudly, because all of that muttering is going to sound like a plane flying overhead on YouTube. And I hear you. I do hear you. And I can almost sympathize with you. I read the Bible week to week, back to back, front to back, about, uh, you know, for about two years when I was at my business down the road. And the repetition would make me wonder, what was up? Why does the Bible keep saying the same things? Well, there are quite a few reasons. One is that the repetitions often form amazing patterns, poetic patterns. Some of you are aware of them, chiasms and parallelisms and other things like that. They're useful tools for memorization, and they're also a way of revealing wisdom, which says these words are not arbitrary. There is design behind them. Scholars who say that the Bible is merely a hodgepodge of people adding in things over time really have to shut up when such patterns are revealed by those who find them. The repetition can also show the advancement of a thought, either in depth or in time. In time, 
Sometimes something is said, and then it's said later in the order of the Bible, but when researched, it's found to be a part of something that actually happened at a different time where it aligns with a previous thought. The book of Jeremiah in particular is famous for that. Thus, there are inserts between repetitions which develop a theme for a specific purpose. In depth, repetitions are often used to build a theme in a different way. Information is given, and then information is repeated with slight changes or additions. Thus, a command or a precept may start out very simple and grow into something more detailed. As an example, you could write a story about an annual celebration called the Beach Party. Friends get together and they celebrate it each year. When writing the story about it, the author wants to develop a theme, and so he writes, In 2015, we all went to the beach and had a great time. While we were there, we took lots of pictures, but unfortunately, none of the pictures survived the party. Sometime later in the story, we read, In 2015, while at the party on the beach, everyone took photos with their own cameras. It was a great time, but we felt bad about losing the memories because none of the pictures in any of the cameras could be saved. This type of addition on the same theme develops the idea. When we get to the reason for the loss of pictures, it all becomes clear. At the end of the party in 2015, everyone posed for a group picture. All the cameras were set on a timer, and everyone posed together. As each camera clicked the photo, the camera stopped working. We realized that Charlie had snuck into the photo, and his appearance caused all of the cameras to break. Thanks a lot, Charlie. The Lord also develops ideas through repetition and addition at times. We see this in similar and yet contrasting accounts, like in the Gospels, very clearly. In the Gospels, the feeding of the 5,000 is mentioned in all four Gospels, but they're all mentioned a little bit differently. But when the stories are combined, a whole picture is realized. And then, of course, there is the fact that we have hard heads. Repetition is often used to beat into our heads a precept, a command, a doctrine, or something else which is of unusual importance. Repetition is one key to memory retention. I'll say it again. Repetition is one key to memory retention. Should I say it again? All this opening here to tell you that this passage is similar to that of Exodus 12, but it also has differences. It has been given to show us a sequence of events, the development of a concept, specifically the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and it has been given to hopefully help us to remember what we have heard a little bit better. For these and certainly other reasons, we are going to take our time as we go through these verses in detail. And in fact, I have planned to preach this exact same sermon next week just so that you remember it, okay? Okay, that's not true. So you can get that horrified look off of all of your faces. Our text verse today comes from Jeremiah 36. It's verse 32. Then Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch, the son, the scribe, the son of Nereah, who wrote on it at the instruction of Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And besides, there were added unto them many similar words. The Lord had Jeremiah write on a scroll words of judgment against Israel, against Judah, and against all of the nations. When he did, the scroll was taken to the king of Judah. It was read to him, and while it was being read, he cut off portions that were read and then threw them into the fire. Eventually, the Lord instructed Jeremiah to recite the same words to his scribe again and add more words into them. 
Thus the Lord developed a theme for the king of Judah, whether he listened or not. The account is also recorded for us. Even though we only have the one account, we can mentally discern the repetition of the words of Jeremiah. A theme was developed through this repetition, and it has become a memorable passage that is actually quite hard to forget. If not the details, at least the overall thought which was relayed. When you see repetitions in the Bible, don't let them trouble you. Rejoice in them. Seek to find out why they are there and what the Lord is trying to tell you. And we're going to do just that today with the instructions for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It is a feast which has already been partly described, and it will be mentioned a few more times in the books of Moses. Each time, something new will come out for us to see. What a wonder, what a wonder is his superior word. It's waiting there for us to open it and to check it out. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today, I have three of them, is consecrate to me all the firstborn. This is verses 1 through 4. Verse 1, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, as, has, as happens from time to time, the words, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, are set off as their own verse. Normally, they're combined with the first thought spoken afterwards. But for whatever reason, they are occasionally made to be their own verse. As I believe that even the verse divisions are inspired by God, one reason for this could be to have the chapter one verse longer than it otherwise would have been, thus making some numerical pattern. Or for whatever other reason, these words are set off by themselves, begging for us to prepare for what lies ahead and also to reflect on the when and the where of their utterance. The first words are vedeber, literally, and spoke. The word then, which is used by the New King James Version translators, is their preference for clarity. And it appears acceptable because verse 3 will tell us a time frame in relation to the words. It is after their departure from Ramses. The where of this passage then is certainly at Sukkot, as was seen in chapter 12 with these words. Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. There at Sukkot, the Lord now conveys his message to Moses. He who draws out has lived up to his name, having drawn out his flock from their home of 215 years and onto a journey towards the land of promise via Sinai. This would be in fulfillment of Exodus 3, verse 12, which said this, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Verse 2, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel. The first directive of the Lord after the Passover and their subsequent departure from Egypt and from bondage is to consecrate to the Lord all the firstborn. Thus, it is specifically based on the Passover. Firstborn is the word bechor, and based on its context, it indicates a firstborn male, not a female. The words, whatever opens, are translated from the word pater. So there's two things going on here. You've got firstborn and whatever opens. Pater, used here, is the first of 12 times that it's going to be seen in the Old Testament. And all of them are in Exodus and Numbers, with one exception found in Ezekiel 20, verse 26. It indicates a firstling, open, or such as opens. And it can indicate either children or animals. It comes from the verb patar, 
which means to open or to remove or to set free. So we can think of a baby being set free from the womb. The two words together in this one verse are explained by Harris, Archer, and Waltke. They say, regarding the institution of primogenitor, meaning the firstborn, in the Old Testament, there are two distinct conceptions. First, there is a socio-legal one, which assigns special responsibilities to the first male of the paternal line, meaning the fatherly line, and that is the word behor. Second, there is a cultic conception which assigns special responsibilities to the first male issue of the maternal or the mother line. That's the word pater. This one is dedicated to God. If it is a sacrificial animal, it must be sacrificed. Otherwise, the firstborn must be redeemed. This verse is given now in connection with the delivery of the people from both death, which occurred in Egypt, and from Egypt itself. The firstborn was saved by the blood of the lamb, and so the directions are given for their consecration in accord with that. However, this cannot be all that's tied up in this. The reason why is that all of Israel was delivered through the death of the firstborn of Egypt and the saving of the firstborn of Israel. In Exodus 4, verse 22, the Lord called the whole nation of Israel, my son, my firstborn. Israel's election as God's people was a prerequisite for the exemption of the death of the firstborn through the blood of the lamb. It must be then that the firstborn is declared as belonging to the Lord as representative of the entire nation of people. In this, we can see the Lord Jesus once again. He is the firstborn who is the representative of all of God's people. Another reason Israel is given these instructions just as they depart is that it will be a memorial of the historical account, firmly to be fixed on the collective mind of Israel. Of course, it is ultimately given to show us a picture of Christ, the Lamb who died to deliver his people from bondage. When Jesus was born, Luke is very, very careful to show that he was so consecrated to the Lord. Here's what it says in Luke chapter 2. Now when the days of her purification, meaning Mary, according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Verse 2 continues, both of man and beast, it is mine. It needs to be understood that the firstborn who opens the womb of the mother is speaking of a male. If a female had a female first and then later a male, that male was not considered devoted to God because it was not the firstborn. Also, if a male, it was a male that came first from the woman, it was considered the firstborn of the mother, even if the father had other males from other wives. This firstborn was not the property of the parents, but of God. If a human, it was to be presented to God and then redeemed, just as we saw with Jesus. If it was an animal, then other directives were to be followed. And these are going to be explained later in this chapter and then further refined after that. Because the firstborn was considered the representative of the whole, this setting apart of the firstborn then is a picture of the Lord who represents all of his people who are now, like Israel was under the Old Testament, to be considered the firstborn of God. The author of Hebrews gives us words of this confirmation. Here's what it says in Hebrews 12 about you and me. But you have come to the Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, 
to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better than that of Abel. Verse 3, And Moses said to the people, Remember this day. These words show us that the passage was spoken to Moses at Sukkot on the first day after the Exodus, after their arrival and settling in. It is the 15th of the month, and he in turn instructs the people, Zachor et Hayom Hazeh, remember the day this. Verse 3 continues, in which you came up out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. It is literally the house of slavery. The people were slaves, and they are now free. To understand the picture in the greater panorama of redemptive history, we can go to the words of Jesus in John to see how this delivery of Israel from Egypt only mirrors man's delivery from sin as was accomplished by Jesus Christ. Here are his words. Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits a sin is a slave of sin. Has everybody here committed a sin? Okay. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Paul explains what occurred in detail in the book of Romans. In chapter 6, he gives this explanation. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Now remember, he died to the death to sin, but he didn't have any sin of his own. That means your sin went with him. If you see what's going on here, and Paul finishes, likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If we can keep mentally inserting Christ in the church into the overall Exodus account, we can get a really good grasp of the marvel of what Jesus Christ did for us. We were in bondage and Christ drew us out. Verse 3 continues, my hair is standing up all over my body with these verses. For by strength of hand, the Lord brought you out of this place. The term strength of hand uses the noun form chozek of the more traditional verb or adjective, which is chazak. This noun is used only five times in the Bible, and three of them are in Exodus chapter 13. The term here is more emphatic than when the verb or the adjective is used. It is always used in the sense of military or conquering prowess. In these three uses in Exodus 13, it is always used in connection with a plural pronoun. By a strong hand, he brought all of us out. We are being given reminders that it is by the hand of the Lord from which our collective deliverance comes. But the collective is made up of what? Individuals, which, were made, which make up then the whole. And so it is a reminder of our own state before him. We are saved by his grace and not our own works. There is no boasting in what we have done because everything has been accomplished by him for his people. And because of this, specific directions are given. Verse 3 going on, No leavened bread shall be eaten. 
As a memorial of the work of the Lord and the hasty departure from Egypt, there was no leavened bread eaten. It is, again, a picture of our position in Christ. In his explanation of our deliverance from sin, which I gave you a moment ago, Paul told us that as Christ died once to all for sin, we should likewise reckon ourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 4, on this day you were going out in the month of Aviv. In Exodus 12, verse 2, the Lord told Moses, this month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. The calendar of redemption was to begin at the time of the Passover, and now that month's name is given for the very first time in the Bible. It is Aviv. The word Aviv is used only eight times in the Bible, all in the books of Moses. Six times it is used to describe the month itself and twice to describe fresh ears of grain. It means, Aviv means greenness or fresh and it indicates fresh young ears of barley grain which come forth at this time of year, which, by the way, is a picture of Christ, which I'm not going to get into today. In the Bible, this will continue to be the first month of the sacred or the religious calendar, but eventually it's going to be known as Nisan, using the Aramaic name instead of the Hebrew name. As a mark of grace upon Israel, this month was selected because, according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, they say it was the best season for undertaking a journey to the desert region of Sinai, especially with flocks and herds. For then the winter torrents had subsided and the wadis were covered with an early and luxuriant verdure. In other words, the cattle could have something to eat as they walked out of Egypt. So God was preparing them in a, a, a time of year when it's not too hot, when it's not too cold, and instead it would be the perfect weather for the trip and the perfect uh, time for the flocks to have a little nibble along the way. The firstborn of the womb is mine, he in place of all. For all in my flock have been redeemed in reality. The firstborn is set apart according to my call. Of your redemption it is a reminder constantly. In my church the lamb died as your holy substitute, but he was also the firstborn of his mother's womb. And he, the firstborn over all of creation, righteousness he does impute, because he was also the firstborn from the tomb. Because of him you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. You are the church of the firstborn who I keep my eye on. I shall watch over you always as in my presence you trod. Our second thought today is seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. Verses five through seven. Verse five, and it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. When God promised the land to Abraham back in Genesis 15, 10 people groups were mentioned. In Exodus 3, when the Lord first spoke to Moses, six people groups were mentioned. Now only five are mentioned. At other times, later, seven or eight are going to be mentioned. It's not certain why the names are stated sometimes and overlooked at other times, but God has his reasons, even if they aren't plainly evident to a guy like me. In the end, though, the general word Canaanite is used as a metaphor for all of the descendants of Ham who occupied the land of Canaan. In the words now, it is taken as a foregone conclusion that the Lord will, in fact, bring them into the land of promise. And we're going to be, in fact, brought to the land of promise as well. So this is a picture of us when we are brought into his presence that glorious day, and may that be soon. Verse 5 continues, which he swore to your fathers to give you. The land was originally promised to Abraham. Isaac was the inheritor of that right, and from him Jacob was given this promise. From Jacob, 
all of the sons of Israel, including his two adopted sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, were included in the inheritance. God swore, and now he is ready to fulfill the promise that was originally made over 400 years earlier. Verse 5 continues, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the third time of 20 times that this expression, a land flowing with milk and honey, will be used in the Bible. It is the last time that it will be used is in Exodus, or I'm sorry, Ezekiel chapter 20, where it is also called the glory of all lands. A land flowing with milk and honey implies richness and fertility. Milk comes from cows, and so it means that there will be abundant pasture lands. Honey comes from bees, which pollinate flowers, and so it implies all sorts of fruit trees and herbs and flowers. Deuteronomy 8 describes the land so beautifully. For the Lord God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs that flow out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. One more point about the term a land flowing with milk and honey is that it is not just speaking of physical abundance of the land, but also of the spiritual abundance. It is the land of God's word and the people through whom that word has come. The word of God is said to be sweeter than honey. It's also equated with milk that nourishes. Thus, this is a reference to that as well. The land would literally flow with milk and honey for sustaining Israel's physical lives, it would also flow with milk and honey for sustaining their spiritual lives. Verse 5 continues, that you shall keep this service in this month. This is a close repeat of the words from Exodus 12, verse 25, when the instruction for the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were first given. Moses is repeating the instructions to the people now that their deliverance has come to remind them of what was expected of them before it had occurred. The first admonition was in expectation of deliverance. The second is given as confirmation that they have received it. The Lord promised and the Lord fulfilled. The first time Moses instructed the elders, now he repeats the commandment for all of the people. Verse 6, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. This here is explicit. For seven days unleavened bread was to be eaten. It does not say you may not eat bread with leaven for seven days. Instead, it says seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. This is again repeated in Leviticus 23, verse 6 and elsewhere. It is not a negative command, which means that they could abstain from any bread as long as they didn't partake in leavened bread. Instead, it is a positive command. They were to eat unleavened bread during the entire feast. This goes in picture to what we should actually fulfill according to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians. Here's what Paul says. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Not only are we to not partake of sin, but we are to actively live our lives in sincerity and in truth. It is not that we can abstain from the whole if we abstain from one. It is that we are to abstain from one while actively partaking in the other. 
Verse 6 continues, And on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. In Exodus 12, verse 14, it said that the entire seven days was to be a feast to the Lord. Then, in 12.16, it noted that both the first and the seventh days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread were to be called Holy Convocations. On those days, no work was to be done. Now, in addition to that, another detail is given concerning the seventh day. It is to specifically be a Chag, or a Feast to the Lord. Israel was to not merely abstain from work, but they were to actively celebrate the work of the Lord. The entire week was to be a feast, but the seventh day was to be a feast unto itself as a festive termination to the entire feast. Some Christian scholars, and I hope you'll remember this because you're going to hear it again at some point, they try to align the resurrection of Jesus Christ with the day that Israel went through the Red Sea. However, this would not align with the table of recorded stops, which is found in Numbers chapter 33. But the Jewish calendar reckons this seventh day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread as that day. Accordingly, the final day of the feast would be the day they passed through the waters of the Red Sea. The Bible is not specific that either is the case, but of the two, the Jewish tradition would be correct. And there is a reason for this, which will be explained when we get to that passage. Verse 7, unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days. The mandate is repeated yet again. This is the fourth time in just two chapters that they are told not only to not eat leavened bread, but they are to eat unleavened bread. Again, this is a positive command in addition to the negatives that are given. The repetition here is not unnecessary, but rather it is critical to fully understanding the New Testament fulfillment of this feast. As we are in Christ, we are to not only not eat of the bread of wickedness, but we are to eat of the bread of sincerity and truth. Otherwise, our abstention from the first still leaves a void in what others see. It's not uncommon to see unsaved people avoiding sin. We see it all the time. If that is all that others see in us, then it doesn't truly set us apart. Only when we act like Christ do we resemble the one who makes us Christians. Verse 7 continues, And no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. And yet the opposite is true as well. Not only are we to act in a positive manner, but we are also to refrain from negative actions. Just as no leaven was to be seen among the people of Israel during their feast, no leaven is to be seen among us in our life in Christ. And that's a tall order, isn't it? Trying to live perfectly before the Lord, but that's what he's showing us in this Old Testament feast. That's a picture of Christ in the church. We're not only to abstain from one, we're to actively participate in the other. Holy and pure is how you are to conduct your life, abstaining from all malice and from wicked ways, keeping yourselves from backbiting and from strife, instead living out your lives properly all your days. Because you truly are unleavened in my eyes. Having called on Jesus, you are free from your sin debt. You have reached out in your need and took hold of the prize. Receiving Jesus as your Savior, all my conditions met. Therefore, walk holy, just as you are already reckoned. Walk in a manner worthy of your heavenly call, for you responded when my spirit beckoned, because my son Jesus has broken down the wall. Our third thought is, as a sign and a memorial. It's verses 8 through 10. Verse 8, And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, this is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. 
In Exodus 12, it was taken as a given that the children would ask what the memorial of the Passover service was for. In verse 26, it said this, And it shall be when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? The same is implied here. After being fed unleavened bread for several days in a row, it would be natural to ask what was going on. The parents were to be ready with their answer. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. And one of the most common questions to faithful, and I'm talking about faithful Christians from their children or those around them who don't know the works of the Lord is, why do you believe and act as you do? The answer should be your testimony based on what the Lord did for me when I came up from my life of sin and bondage. We are to remember his acts of goodness to us that others may hear about them and believe what has really come about in our lives. They should be able to see a difference in who we were, who we are, and how we are different from the world around us. Verse 9, it shall be as a sign to you on your hand as, and as a memorial between your eyes. In Matthew 23, Jesus speaks of the scribes and the Pharisees in a most negative light. His words equate their treatment of the common people with that of Pharaoh and Egypt towards Israel. He then notes their ostentatious displays of life, including the wearing of phylacteries, those boxes on their heads. They also wore these things around their arms. Here are his words concerning them. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works are to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best place at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you are not to be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. The practice of wearing armbands and phylacteries can be traced back to this verse and to verse 16 of this same chapter, which repeats and enlarges the thought that's given here. They and observant Jews to this day have taken these words, which contain a spiritual meaning, and they have given them a physical application. They are externally worn symbols for others to see and to fawn over. Oh, look at those observant Jews. They must be the cat's meow to God because of their obvious piety. And we can ascribe the same thing to the Pope wearing all these luscious garments and all of the things that people in other churches, and I'm not talking about all other churches, but they wear things so that men can see their holiness and their collars and all of these things. But what Moses says to the people was meant in an analogous way. The words, as a sign on your hand, are meant to show that the act of obedience to the Lord through the observance of the mandated ritual was to be as evident as the hand accomplishing a feat. Anyone watching a person at work will see the hand as it carries out the task. The word sign is ot. It indicates something which points to something else. The observance is carried out to show obedience to the Lord who mandated the observance. When a person raises their hand in an oath, it is a sign of their faithfulness to the one in whose name the oath is given. Thus, it is a sign of fealty to the one to whom they have pledged allegiance to. The memorial between your eyes is the personal remembrance of the observance, which then points to the personal obedience to the Lord who mandated it. Between the eyes is where the forehead is. It is the symbolic place of memory. 
and it is also the symbolic place of acknowledging and avowing the Lord's authority over the individual. One makes the mental ascent of being obedient to the Lord, and thus a memorial is between the eyes at all times. It is as a personal seal to a higher authority. This verse here and verse 16, which is coming, have absolutely nothing to do with external badges of piety. Instead, they have everything to do with actual accomplishments of allegiance which can be observed and by which the individual attests to the authority of the one over him. This is borne out elsewhere in the Bible. Several passages in Proverbs use the exact same type of terminology as what Moses uses right here. I'm going to read you just two of them. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And then the second one is from Proverbs 6. It says, My son, keep your father's command and do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart. Tie them around your neck. Nobody takes that literally. These Proverbs, along with the fact that nowhere else in the Old Testament are phylacteries actually mentioned, show that the words here are to carry the same significance as a mark, either branded or tattooed, on the hand or on the forehead. This, then, is in contradistinction to the mark of the beast, which is coming. It's found in Revelation chapter 13. That is a mark of allegiance to the Antichrist of the end times. Here's how that verse reads. He causes all both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. The rejection of that mark is to be a mental assertion that one has allied himself with the Lord. Such an alliance with him is not an external box on the head or a wrapping upon his arm. Instead, it is a rejection of the mark of the beast and a sign and a memorial that they have received instead the authority of the Lord over them. And all of this is verified in the next words of verse 9, that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. The sign on the hand and the memorial between the eyes is specifically connected to the fact that the Lord's law would then be in your mouth. Nobody takes this portion of verse 9 literally. Has anybody ever seen an observant Jew walking around with a scroll of the Torah hanging out of their mouth? No, of course not. To say that two physical applications then equates to one metaphorical application or even one literal application where somebody just walks around continuously repeating verses from the law does injustice to the entire intent of this verse. The hand is to act upon and the mind is to contemplate the feast so that the Lord's law might be in the mouth of the observer. This is what you are to do. You have seen it in my actions, and my words now confirm that to you, my dear son. Verse 9 continues, For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. Again, it's repeated that the Lord has accomplished the task. This time, instead of using the noun form that we saw earlier, strength of hand, it uses the adjective, strong hand. It is as if we are being told in this verse that we were each in a pit, and the Lord reached down and pulled us up out of it. All were in the pit, every single person, and he reached down individually and pulled us out until the whole group was safe. It is a touching note of personal deliverance by which we have been saved. And because of this, we have a personal obligation to respond, which is our final verse of the day, verse 10. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. I should note that in verses 3 and 4, Moses spoke to the people using plural pronouns. In essence, you all, 
okay? But since verse 5, he has been speaking in singular pronouns. He opened this speech to the people as a whole, but he quickly made it a personal lesson for each one of us to learn from. Go back later and read all eight verses again, and you can then more fully grasp what this means. There has been a collective work of the Lord on behalf of his people. And with that came a collective command to be obedient to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And yet there is an individual aspect to this feast as well. If we look at the church, we can see the exact same concept. The Lord did a collective work for all people who had come to him. It is he who performed the miracles. It is he who gave the signs. And it is he who did the work. Dying on Calvary's cross as a church, we are responsible to observe our lives to him. And yet... There are individual responsibilities within that collective whole. His miracles, his signs, and his work were all on behalf of you. Just you. That's how it goes. The admonitions to act in certain ways and to be responsible towards telling one's child about his deliverance are a personal responsibility. It does not take a village to instruct our children. Instead, it takes our personal individual lives, which include our actions, our obedience, and our teaching about the Lord and his ways. What belongs to the collective church also belongs to the individual. And the responsibility in each of us individually is to ensure that we act properly and within the confines of what the Lord has done individually for us and collectively. At the beginning of the sermon, I mentioned the similarity between the corresponding passage. In Exodus 12, it was verses 12 through 20, but especially verses 20, I'm sorry, 14 through 20. Those seven verses were all addressed using plural pronouns. Despite seeming to say pretty much the same thing, they were not. That passage was written to the superior word for all of our ears to collectively hear. The passage that we're looking at today is mostly addressed to each person filling a seat for all of our ears to individually hear. So let's pay heed to the word collectively and individually. And let's apply these lessons to our lives, ever striving to be truly unleavened, filled with sincerity and truth and putting behind us the leaven of Egypt, that of malice and wickedness. And finally, as I do each week, I'd like to tell you in simple terms why Jesus came and how it is relevant to you. If you've never received him as your Lord and Savior, it is the most important decision you could ever make. And you wonder why I say this week after week after week. It's because repetition is one key to memory retention, right? You just keep repeating it, repeating it. So not only am I hoping that if somebody here has never really truly called on Jesus, but you'll also be prepared to say the same thing to somebody else someday. Keep hearing this week after week. Jesus Christ came out of the eternal realm where God is. He stepped out of eternity and united with human flesh in order to redeem us from sin. The Bible says that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And that's an absolute because Adam sinned and we are in Adam and therefore we inherited Adam's sin. And I'll tell you another thing if you dispute that. Does anybody here acknowledge that you have to teach a child to do wrong? Of course not. You have to teach a child to do right because that child is born with sin in him or her and they're already ready to commit that sin as soon as they can open their mouth for the very first time. And Jesus Christ was not born with that inherited sin. He came from God. He was born of a woman, but not a man. Sin travels through the man, and therefore he was born without sin, and he was born under the law. 
He was born in a way that would make it possible for him to fulfill the law, which nobody else could do because they already had sin in them. And he did. The Gospels record that he fulfilled the law perfectly, never sinning, never sinning under the law. And then he gave his life up in exchange for what you and I have done wrong. And all of that is pictured in this passage that we're looking at today. I don't know how many times any of you have read the Feast of Unleavened Bread before, but have you learned something today about Christ? We are to eat Christ actively. We're not just to abstain from sin. Buddhists do that all the time. We are to eat Christ and to emulate Christ. He died and he took away our sin debt. And all that he asks you to do is trust him. I have sinned. I cannot save myself. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's that simple. So please get that message out as you're talking to people. The time is short, and I do believe that. Our closing verse today comes from Deuteronomy. It's chapter 6. It's verses 6 and 7. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Next week is Exodus 13. It's verses 11 through 22. It's entitled, Their Sign. Great stuff. That'll be our 38th Exodus sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part those waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. I have a quick poem and we'll be done. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. To you I do tell. Whatever opens the womb, I am relaying among the children of Israel. Both the man and beast, it is mine. This command you shall not decline. And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. For by strength of hand, the Lord made the way. He brought you out of this place, all the assemblage. No leavened bread shall be eaten. On this day you are going out. In the month of Aviv, it is when your deliverance came about. And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites too, and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give to you. A land flowing with milk and honey, as I have said, that you shall keep the service in this month as to my word. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you. Nor shall leaven be seen in any ways among you and all your quarters too. And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, This is done because of what came about, of what the Lord did for me, which I now relay when I came up from Egypt, when he brought me out. It shall be as a sign to you on your hand, and also as a memorial between your eyes, no doubt, that the Lord's law may be in your mouth wherever you go. For with a strong hand out of Egypt, the Lord has brought you out. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year when you from Egypt received your deliverance. And so in the Lord alone you shall fear. Great are the stories of the Lord, of his mighty acts undertaken for his flock. Precious is the holy writ, his superior word. Let us read its contents and its mysteries unlock. Let us cherish it more than our necessary food and share it with our children and their children as well so that they too will be imbued with the wisdom of the bubbling well. And Lord, direct our steps, keep us close to you always, and help us to fix our eyes on you alone all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, what a treasure. 
hey, got these passages and they seem to say the same thing. And then we look at the original Hebrew and we find out that it's actually speaking to a completely different premise. You have a word for all of us collectively. You have a word for us individually. Help us to apply that word to our lives as a church, as a group that loves each other and that uh, is here for a brief time and then we'll be departing, each one of us off to our own place and uh, waiting in anticipation for your return. And also individually, we have a responsibility to raise our children and our grandchildren, to tell them of your great works and how wonderful you are to us. Lord, I do pray again for Sarah Carlin, who's certainly missing her mom today. Pray for uh, uh, the gentleman in Cincinnati with the quadruple bypass that we mentioned earlier, for Paul and Elaine who are traveling today, for our brother Jim Blanchard who has uh, been struggling through something. We pray for all of these people and for all of the others here that are having their afflictions and their difficulties. Lord, we thank you for the week behind us and all the blessings you've given us and we anticipate good things from your hand as well in the week to come. But should you withhold them from us, We'll still try to have enough strength to just praise you. If you would grant us that honor, even in our affliction, to give us enough, enough strength to just praise you, I'm sure that every person here would be satisfied with just that. You are great, and you are greatly to be praised. Help us to do so all of our days, and we'll do so in the name of our exalted Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We get the instructions for the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible, we get it from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul wrote these words to us. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and he would have given thanks over it. He would have said these words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it, and he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam borei pori hagatman. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself not discerning the Lord's body.
the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. 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 Heavenly Father, again we come to you in just thanks and praise for your goodness to us. You've filled us with good things, and uh, you've shown us the way of taking the bread of sincerity and truth, and proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ and his death until he comes again. So we do that now. We thank you for the opportunity to do so. We're the honored and privileged people who are known by your name. We thank you for that, Lord Jesus. What an honor to be called by the name of the Creator himself when we don't deserve one iota of it. How great you are. How absolutely great you are. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. <laughs>